Today on Nurse Talk, author and president of Social Security Works, Nancy Altman, is on a mission to debunk the manufactured myths about Social Security, and she uses facts to do it. As nurses and other influential organizations and labor movements launch a national Medicare for All campaign, Labor Campaign for Single-Payer National Coordinator Mark Dudzik is with us today. California Governor Gavin Newsom is off to a good start, and he's stirring things up on the state and national scene. And Healthcare in America senior correspondent Donna Smith invites us all to visit www.medicareforall.org, a new website that will show us all how to participate in changing America's broken healthcare system. All this and more today on Nurse Talk. Welcome to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, along with my co-host Shane Mason, and we are two of the thousands of nurses on duty today. Casey, it's good to see you, and we have a great show today. One of our favorite guests, author and president of Social Security Works, Nancy Altman, will be with us to talk about her new book, Get Ready for This Title, The Truth About Social Security, The Founders' Words Refute Revisionist History, Zombie Lies, and Common Misunderstandings. So sad that she has to put all that in a title, <laughs> but, you know, my, but she does. The zombie lie I'm most uh, sick of hearing about is they're bad at basketball. It's just not true. <laughs> That's it's not true. They can jump. True. Zombies can jump. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a woman on a mission, and I hope everyone reads her book because there are so many manufactured myths, and Nancy will talk about some of those today. And let's not forget to thank all of our listeners on the Tom Hartman program, Progressive Voices TuneIn, WFTE, Pandora, iTunes, and all of our broadcast and organizational partners. Thank you. Shane, as 2019's National Expanded and Improved Medicare for All campaign gets underway, we'll hear from many organizations, lawmakers, and activists who are working to make health care for all a reality. And today, we'll talk with National Coordinator for the Labor Campaign for Single Payer, Mark Dudzik. Swoosh. Due Due to the government shutdown, our swoosh operator is out of commission. (laughs) What really inspired me was I was constantly hearing the refrain in debates about Social Security. Oh, they never intended this. They never intended that. In fact, um, the syndicated columnist Robert Samuelson had op-ed in the Washington Post, and it was syndicated, and it posed the question, would Franklin Roosevelt recognize the program with a clear, his clear conclusion, no, which is absurd. So what I thought was, well, you know, everybody's saying they thought this, they they thought that. Let's go back and and, um, see what they, let them speak for themselves. They obviously are no longer with us, but they have left a very rich written record. That was a short clip of our next guest from a previous interview. In just a moment, we'll talk with author and president of Social Security Works, Nancy Altman. Nancy's a frequent guest on Nurse Talk, and no one knows the facts and history better than Nancy. Altman makes her case in a provocative new book, The Truth About Social Security, The Founders' Words Refute Revisionist History, Zombie Lies, and Common Misunderstandings. She is a well-known progressive advocate for defending and expanding Social Security. She is also an expert on the program's history, having served as a staff member of the bipartisan 1983 commission that developed the most recent set of important reforms to Social Security. Nancy also serves on the Social Security Advisory Board, an independent bipartisan agency that advises the White House, Congress, and Social Security Administration. Nancy, welcome to Nurse Talk. So great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start by testing your myth-busting skills. (laughs) Social Security is a driver of our national debt. Oh, boy, that is such a myth. Social Security does not add a penny to the debt or deficit. It is 
totally funded. Its money is in a trust fund. In fact, it can only pay benefits if it has sufficient revenue to cover the costs. And of course, it's always paid benefits, never missed a payment. So it is a, a real myth that it's a way to undermine Social Security to say, oh, we got to cut it because of the debt. It has nothing to do with the debt. I mean, Paul Ryan lied to me. This is a real, <laughs> Shocking. This is a real loss of innocence here today. Shocking. So, and Mitch, McCon- <laughs> Mitch McConnell? Wow, I can't believe it. You know, one thing that I love to play, There's, if you go on YouTube and look for Ronald Reagan's Social Security and the debt, he clearly says the truth, that it has nothing to do with the debt or deficit. And I like to play that in response to Paul Ryan and so forth, because that's not some, you know, right. liberal saying it, it's Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And and I think the American people understand this. Their money is earmarked, goes into the trust fund, and it goes to pay the benefits and related administrative costs. How about this one? Social Security is built on a house of cards. Its assets are just IOUs. Well, I love to tell people this is one of those zombie lies, because the very first person that I could find who called the Treasury bonds backed by the full faith and credit of the United States, IOUs, was Alf Landon in 1936, just after Social Security was enacted. And it was a big issue in the 1936 campaign, presidential campaign. And he talked about exactly that, that people were going to pay and pay, and all there was going to be were IOUs, and they'd never see their money. The fact of the matter is that the whole world flocks to buy treasury bonds backed by the full faith and credit of the United States because they are so valuable. And in fact, according to the latest trustees report, if you can believe it, there are $2.89 trillion in reserve. That's the surplus, according to the 2018 Social Security trustees report. So, Nancy, the title of your book, The Truth About Social Security, also includes a tagline, The Founders, Words, Refute Revisionist History, Zombie Lies, and Common Misunderstandings. Why is it so important to pay attention to the vision of the founders of Social Security? As you note, the program has always evolved and changed over time. Well, it's a wonderful question. There are several reasons. Part of the reason that spurred me to write it was I was so tired of people saying, oh, the people who created Social Security, they never intended it to be, you know, to benefits to be this high or any of that other sort of stuff. And so it's important to go back because the founders were extremely forward-looking. They really saw Social Security, what we today call Social Security, as part of economic security, which included a living wage. It actually included guaranteed employment was what they thought. It's universal health insurance. They understood that as long as workers are dependent on wages, and of course we all are, you need wage insurance against the loss of those wages, and that's what Social Security is. We obviously can change the program if we want, but it was built on a very ingenious and strong foundation. So it's important to know in the current debate, part of the reason it's so popular is because it was based on basic American values, basic religious values, and the people who created it really understood the pulse of the American people. So if we want to deviate from it, we should know we're deviating. And if we want to follow in their footsteps, we should know what those footsteps are. I, for one, think now when Franklin Roosevelt signed Social Security into law on August 14, 1935, he spoke of the cornerstone on which to build. And one of my conclusions in the book is 
you hear today, oh, they'd never recognize the program. They would certainly recognize Social Security, but they'd be surprised that we didn't have Medicare for all because they thought universal guaranteed health insurance was on the horizon. They'd be surprised that the benefits weren't higher than they are. So what is the role of Social Security in the federal government's debt problems overall then? It's not. Social Security, as I say, has a has actually a two point eight nine trillion dollar surplus. It's actually a creditor of the federal government, which is a good thing because unlike China or other countries that could just decide to cash in all their treasury bonds, obviously Social Security trust funds, the trustees are, are not going to do that. The government knows when new re- revenue is needed. So again, it is a pension plan separate and apart from the general fund, which is the part that has the deficit. This was part of the ingenuity of the founders. It was responsibly financed, and they wanted to make sure, as private pensions are, that there were sufficient resources to pay the benefits, and that's the way the system works. In fact, if there were ever a point where it could not pay benefits, benefits would be reduced automatically. It wouldn't take any kind of action of Congress. There is no way that this can contribute to the deficit unless the law were changed. We're talking with author and president of Social Security Works, Nancy Altman, about her new book, The Truth About Social Security. So why should Social Security not be means-tested? After all, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates don't need Social Security benefits, right? Well, they probably don't need fire insurance either, but if their houses burned down and they have fire insurance, you'd never say, hey, they got too much money. They don't need it. The point is that this is part of Americans' compensation. We do have means-tested supplemental security income, which is a companion program of Social Security, and that should be increased along with increasing Social Security. But the idea of Social Security, it's insurance, not welfare. The difference is that welfare alleviates poverty. Social Security prevents you from falling into poverty in the first place. So if you means-test it the way SSI is, all of a sudden it changes. Even if you say, you know, you make it very high. Right now, what you have to do to claim Social Security is prove something positive about yourself, that you've earned enough and you've contributed enough under covered employment that you have earned these benefits. As I say, it's part of your compensation package. All of a sudden, if it's means tested, you have to show, hey, I'm, I'm not so rich that I can't afford it, that I don't need it. The point is, it's not based on need. It's insurance, the same way fire insurance, car insurance, any other insurance. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and anyone else doesn't have to claim their Social Security if they don't want to. And in fact, there are gifts to the Social Security Trust Fund every year. But they've earned it the same way they've earned their salaries. And it would be just as wrong to say, you don't need your salary. We're going to take 100% of it. As to say, you don't need your Social Security, we're going to take that. It's all part of the compensation all of us earn. Good point. Nancy, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? Yes, something very exciting is happening in the area of Social Security, and that is we really dodged a bullet by this recent election with the House going into Democratic control because the Republicans were already, Mitch McConnell just a few weeks before the election was talking about the need to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. The new chairman of the Social Security Subcommittee is a man by the name of John Larson, a representative from Connecticut. He is 
very much in favor of expanding Social Security and has a bill called the Social Security 2100 Act because it ensures the benefits can be paid in full through the 21st century. He is planning to introduce his bill on FDR's birthday this January 30th. He already has 180 co-sponsors in the House of Representatives. Great. He's hoping to have more, and I'm sure he will, because the new members all ran on expanding Social Security. And he plans to hold hearings, not just in Washington, but all around the country, and really push the issue that we should be expanding Social Security. So stay tuned and look for that. I think it's, it's going to, we're going to really see forward progress in all of our goal to make sure that we have greater economic security. That's so important. So your book is available on Amazon, and where else is it available? It's available in bookstores, independent bookstores, and as you say, online. And in libraries, too, I hope. So people don't have to to buy it, but I hope people do read it, because it really is inspirational what the founders created. And it's really a kind of pay it forward. We are now reaping the rewards of their vision. And what I'd like to see is our generation expand Social Security for the next generation. From your lips to God's ears, that's for certain. To learn more about this topic in the book, visit socialsecurityworks.org or nursetalksite.com. Thanks, Nancy, for your great work and also for being with us today. We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much. Up next, the labor movement's alive and well in this country, and they're joining forces with nurses and other activists to bring expanded and improved Medicare to all. National Labor Coordinator for the Labor Campaign for Single-Payer Health, Mark Dudzik, is up next. You're listening to Nurse Talk Radio on Progressive Voices. Tune in and all of our broadcast partners. We are a company approaching 200 million in sales. We have 160 employees in the United States in various locations. And what we have seen is that healthcare has been a runaway cost. This cost is about 18% of our economy, of our gross domestic product. It detracts from our ability to hire employees and retain employees and It is a disincentive for us to grow our businesses in the United States. And we're competing with other economies, other modern industrialized countries, Western European countries, Canada, that have health care costs half of ours. Uh, You know, we were up in Canada, and it certainly doesn't get in the way there. We met a lot of conservative business people who embrace their single-payer model. So... Throughout the country, we're seeing this initiative for single-payer emerge as a moral standpoint. You're listening to Nurse Talk, where laughter's the best medicine. We are nurses. We cannot diagnose, prescribe, or treat. But can we give advice, Shane? Yeah, don't put things up your nose. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to Nurse Talk. I'm Casey Hobbs, along with Shane Mason, and we are two of the thousands of nurses on duty today. $8,166 per year the total health care costs that that family faces. Out of those numbers, the boss, the employers, pay about 15788 and the family has to pick up the rest through contributions, uh, their paycheck, co-payments, deductibles, un, uh, you know, uncovered expenses, all of the things that we all have to dip into our pockets for when we pay for health care. So those are just huge, unsustainable numbers. $28,000, as you know, is about $14 per hour. 
I mean, how can you be organizing low-wage workers and fight to get their wage up uh, to $15 an hour and then realize you need another $14 an hour for that family to have decent health care coverage? That was a short clip of Mark Dudzik, national coordinator of the labor campaign for single-payer. The primary purpose of the labor campaign for single-payer health care is to increase and coordinate grassroots labor support for a single-payer Medicare-for-all health care system in America, because we believe that health care is a fundamental human right and that the labor movement must take the lead in the fight for health care justice. Here with us is Mark Dudzik. Mark, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, it's great to be here. So you're here to educate us on the role of your organization and how it's been playing in the fight for expanded and improved Medicare for all. But first, share with us your background in the labor movement. Well, I've been a union member since uh, 19, in the early 1970s. Uh, I spent most of my time in a union called the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, uh, which is now part of the Steel Workers Union. Um, I worked in a precious metals refinery in New Jersey, and then I was a local union president and a then a district council president. Um, my union was very active in an effort to try to create a labor-based political party in the late 1990s. Uh, I moved to D.C. to work on that effort, and out of that, uh, we got involved in this uh, uh, program to really move the labor movement into the fight for health care justice. And we launched the labor campaign for single payer in 2009. And we've been building momentum ever since. Great. And uh, Mark, talk about your organization. When did it start? And uh, were there many unions that supported single payer back then? Yeah, well, we launched it in 2009. Um, If you remember back in those Exciting days. It was uh, right before the inauguration, the, uh, the first inauguration of President Obama, and we knew there was going to be a huge debate about health care policy for the first time in, in a number of years. And so we launched in an effort to try to put single-payer Medicare for all on the table as part of that political discussion. And our particular role was to try to move the institutional labor movement into um, taking up that effort and devoting organizational uh, resources and political muscle uh, to that effort. So we started with a small group of national unions and several dozen local and regional unions, um, the National Nurses Union and its predecessors like the California Nurses Association and uh, the Minnesota Nurses Association have all were there from the very beginning and have always played a leading role in it. But we now have about 14 national unions who are affiliated, as well as you know uh, over well over a hundred local and regional bodies, including some state labor federations. And we continue to grow in momentum. The AFL-CIO has passed some resolutions at its the last two conventions to put them on record as supporting a Medicare for All solution. And now we're trying to get them to do more and to stand up and to help lead this fight forward. So important. So how is your organization funded? So we are funded completely by the labor movement and by individuals who believe that the labor movement ought to be part of this fight. We get no money from foundations or from any corporations or any anywhere else. And 2019 seems to be a kind of a year of momentum with over 70% of Americans supporting single payer. Can you talk about how you fit into the national movement and what you'd be willing to work with other labor unions and members of Congress? Yeah, well, this is our moment. This is the time that we've really got to 
you know, see a pathway emerging towards victory. As you know, I don't know if you've discussed it on your show, but Representative Jayapal is getting ready to introduce a new, expanded, updated version of H.R. 676 in the House of Representatives. We're really excited about the bill. We've been part of the discussions about what a bill ought to look like. We think we can push for committee hearings. We believe that a majority of the Democratic caucus in the House of Representatives will endorse that bill. And um, what we really want to do is set the table for 2020 when a transformative political movement could sweep into Washington and put Medicare for all on the agenda. So we want to create the conditions where we continue to build momentum there and that we don't get sidetracked in sort of these efforts that expend a huge amount of energy to produce very little in terms of incremental reforms on a system that cannot really be reformed. So true. Doesn't it make sense to employers across the country to have a single-payer system? So are the corporations supporting single-payer? Because it seems like it would be good for them, or is it more manufacturing or others who support it? Yeah, well, you know, we got this crazy system that no other country in the world has that links most Americans' health care to employment. And it's, you know, it doesn't work for the American people, you know, to be chained to a job in order to get your health care. And if you lose your job, you lose your health care. Often if you get sick, you lose your health care. You go on strike, you lose your health care. Uh, and it's not really working for employers either. They pay, you know, way more than uh, employers pay anywhere else in the world. You know, however... We've found that most private sector, large private and sector employers are allergic to the idea of any kind of social insurance programs and any kind of program that creates new rights for working people. So it's been a real slog to get large employers into this fight, even though in the long run they would achieve huge savings. So we continue to push that. We've urged unions to make that a bargaining issue when they go in and their employer tells them how they can't afford to pay for health care, that they demand that those employers join them in lobbying for a Medicare for All system. But uh, we've got a lot of work to do uh, to move this forward among the uh, employer community. That's fascinating to me, Mark, that that what we're talking about is corporations would rather not do something that's better for their bottom line because then their workers wouldn't be under their thumb as much. So exactly. really, it's, a, it's about the control issue that these people are going after. That's that's exactly right. They you know, they want workers uh, and I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to paint all employers like this, but, uh, you know, I've done a lot of negotiating in my time and, you know, they want workers to be uh, subject to them for health care. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. they like the fact that if you lose your job, you lose your health care. Gives them power over working people. And, you know, they have a plan to deal with the high health care costs, and it's to shift it onto the backs of workers. Health care uh, workers have paid a larger percentage of their health care costs every year since at least 1984 when they started tracking these things. They've done that incrementally so that we didn't even notice. So yeah, they slowly right. like just that, ramped uh, it up. They're very clever about the way they move. The frog in the pot of uh, water. That's exactly what happened every year. And because, you know, we have this fragmented system, you know, they pick off one group of workers at a time. And so you don't see the effect until you look around and see everybody else has already lost it. And that's what drives a lot of these strikes and lockouts and things, you know, workers that have 
held on to their benefits, you know, suddenly employers are coming to the table and saying, hey, guys, you know, 95% of the rest of the working class is already paying for their health care. Uh, we're not paying for it anymore. You guys are going to have to start paying. And, you know, that causes all of these conflicts. And, um, you know, by the time that happens, often we're too isolated to defend it. So like it or not, employment health care has become unsustainable. And even if we believed that it was the best way to get our health care, we just can't do it anymore. We've got to find another way. Mark, uh, how could people find out more about the labor campaign for single payer and how can they get active? Laborforsinglepayer.org. And um, you can sign up on that for updates and we will try to plug you in. Um, You know, the big thing coming up is the uh, week of action, February 9th through the 13th. Uh, where there will be hundreds of barnstorm meetings around the country that will try to uh, activate people, uh, plug them into this fight for Medicare for All, and in particular plugging it into the effort to get the House of Representatives to do the right thing and begin to do the work to get this bill ready for passage. That's great. Mark, thanks so much for being with us today. We want to thank you for your years of service on behalf of all workers around the country. We so appreciate your fight. Well, thank you for the job you're doing. Take care. Great. We've been talking with National Coordinator for the Labor Campaign for Single Payer, Mark Dudzik. For more information, visit laborforsinglepayer.org. Due to the government shutdown, we have no music. So that whistling can only mean one thing. It's time for Healthcare in America with Donna Smith. Donna, welcome. Love the, the do-it-yourself intro. I love it. Nice. Well, you know, when the government shut down, Donna, you have to do what you can do. Yeah, exactly. And good job. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, Donna, I understand you're going to announce the new MedicareForAll.org site that was recently launched by National Nurses United. Can you talk about the site and why it's so important? The site uh, just is a representation of a, a one central clearinghouse for all the information about the new Medicare for All campaign. Medicare for the number all.org is where you go. And the nurses have set out on a really ambitious but wonderful campaign to pursue. Pramila Jayapal is going to introduce very shortly her new Medicare for All bill that uh, is based on H.R. 676 that many people knew for many years that John Conyers was carrying. So it's just going to be a great campaign. The site tells people everything from what barnstorming events are coming up. It's just fun to get on it and see the energy of it, and it's just a great place to see. Yeah, it sounds like a a good opportunity for people to get involved in all of this. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we have thousands of nurses all over the country who have marched for Medicare for All. There were groups of nurses and groups of of advocates for Medicare for All that joined in with the Women's March to make sure that people knew that health care is a human right. It's one of the central things to so many people and certainly to our nurses. Well, 70 percent of all Americans support Medicare for All. Donna, do you have any thoughts on Governor Newsom kind of coming on strong with health care and education as far as Yes. Oh, thank you for asking. Uh, It is really wonderful that one of the first things he did right out of the gate 
when he was inaugurated as the governor of California was to make good on his commitment to move forward on pursuing a Medicare for all type universal health care for all Californians. And anybody who thinks that thinks that won't push the country is wrong. Gavin has moved really aggressively forward in terms of making sure all undocumented people will be able to get care, thank goodness. And what a novel idea. It costs far more to provide emergency care for people, as nurses know, when they get too sick to do anything else but show up at the ER than it does to provide decent health care for people all along the way. And fortunately, Gavin Newsom, as the leader of the largest state in the nation, uh, the most populous state, has recognized not only the fiscal sanity of doing that, but he's making good on his campaign promises and moving forward. This does not mean that California does doesn't have work to do to actually get a Medicare for All bill passed in the legislature. But boy, does it make a big difference when you've got a governor who's moving in the right direction. And you should know how impactful that is. I'm in Denver, Colorado, and we were meeting with candidates for the Denver City Council the other day, and they were taking notes as I described to them the Healthy San Francisco program. Mm -hmm. And they were very interested in making sure that perhaps they can replicate something similar in Denver, Boulder, and Aurora, Colorado together. What a powerful thing that California does when they set that kind of progressive human example for all of us around the country. So thank you, Gavin Newsom, and thank you, California. All right. We've been talking with Nurse Talk senior correspondent and contributor to Healthcare in America, Donna Smith. For more information about these topics, visit nursetalksite.com. Thanks, Donna. We appreciate you. Thank you. Likewise. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our executive producer, Patty Lockard, sound design and engineering, June Miller and JMC Sound, and Taylor Lockard Research. And National Nurses United and all the nurses on duty today, and of course, our listeners and guests. Take care and visit us at nursetalksite.com or like our Facebook page at Nurse Talk. <laughs>